Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus get your copy of the conscious mind cleansing today at tybro.com KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. I'm Jessica Ettinger, CNBC. Mixed major indexes on Wall Street during midday trading. We've got the Dow up 88 points. The NASDAQ is lower by 8 points. The S&P is up a quarter percent, up 6 points, above 3,000 at 3,013. The list of companies reporting better than expected quarterly results this morning includes Procter & Gamble, Sherwin-Williams, and United Technologies. The big miss? was McDonald's, and its shares are down 3%. Companies whose shares hit all-time highs so far today include Dollar Tree, Target, Bristol-Myers, and Apple. The Food Network is offering what the CEO calls the Peloton of the Kitchen. You can sign up for Food Network Kitchen, a series of live cooking classes that you take while you're in your own kitchen over your phone or an iPad or any other tablet. Live classes will be $48 a year subscription. CNBC. Nobody does spicy like Wendy's. Yep. So all hail the queen of spice. Because this is the day Wendy's spicy nuggets are back. And tomorrow is the day Wendy's spicy nuggets are back. Wendy's brought them back. So now every day is the day Wendy's spicy nuggets are back. This is, this is the day. To get the scenic route, but this is the way. That's all news, baby. This is the day. They gonna miss us today. You gonna miss us today. Wendy's Spicy Nuggets are back. Get yours this day. We got you. For a limited time, only at participating Wendy's. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, not for sale to minors. Website restricted to adults 21 and over. I'd been smoking for a while. I tried vaping when it first came out. It just didn't work for me. But recently, I tried My Blue and it actually gave me the nicotine satisfaction I was looking for. My Blue is easy to use and it lasts all day. I even like having the different flavors and nicotine options. It's nice having a choice. I think other smokers will be surprised by My Blue. I certainly was. And right now, try My Blue for $1 at select retailers or myblue.com. NBC News Radio. I'm Brian Shook. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is criticizing President Trump's claim that the House impeachment process is a lynching. Given the history in our country, I would not uh, compare this uh, to uh, a lynching. That was an unfortunate uh, choice of words. 
Talking with reporters at the Capitol, McConnell also accused House Democrats of presiding over a grossly unfair process. President Trump's top diplomat in Ukraine is giving damaging testimony in a House hearing today. Acting Ukraine Ambassador William Taylor is claiming he was told the release of nearly $400 million in military aid was contingent to a public declaration to investigate the Bidens and a debunked 2016 election conspiracy theory. Actor Jesse Smollett's court problems are not over. A federal judge judge in Chicago ruled that the city can continue to try and recoup $130,000 from Smollett. Brian Shook, NBC News Radio. Hey, this check is wrong. I worked a holiday and seven hours of overtime. Not getting paid correctly is a real pain. It could also hurt our boss if our company provides out-of-compliance checks. That's right, construction companies doing business with the government can get fined, or officials of the companies can go to jail if the checks aren't right. It's a law. The Davis-Bacon Act has 30 compliance issues for every check, but there is an easy way for construction companies to be in compliance. EMARS offers Compliant Client, a web-based system that finds and corrects all 30 of the possible out-of-compliance check issues. Users of Compliant Client report an 80% savings in time and money. Running a weekly payroll usually takes about five minutes. All 15,000-plus clients of EMARS have never had a legal compliance issue. Plus, they sleep better on check day. Contact EMARS at emarsinc.com or call 480-595-0466. Listen up, guys. Are you experiencing any of the following? Fatigue? Less drive? Poor performance? If so, you may be one of the nearly 30 million men in the U.S. today dealing with ED. But did you know you don't have to pay hundreds for a prescription anymore? And you don't have to deal with the hassle of seeing the doctor or the embarrassment of going to the pharmacy for a certain pill. Now, with one free call, you can find out how Herbal Virility Max can help you feel like a man again. For over a decade, Herbal Virility Max has helped guys just like you put a smile back on their face with improved performance and drive. Call today at 800-498-5668. That's 800-498-5668. Save the money, save the hassles, and get the better blue pill. Call 800-498-5668. That's 800-498-5668. The Hebo Tea Club's original pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. So it naturally has antifungal, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-infection, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. But maybe more importantly, the Hebo Tea Club's original pure Pouty Arco Super Tea builds corpuscles in the blood, which carry oxygen to our organs and cells. Our organs and cells need oxygen to regenerate themselves. The immune system needs oxygen to develop and cancer happens to die in oxygen. The tea is great for healthy people and can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The Hebo Tea Club's original Pure Pau de Arco Super Tea is only $34.95 plus shipping. Order now at DeHeboTeaClub.com or call 818-610-8088. Dehebo is spelled T-A-H-E-E-B-O. So DeHeboTeaClub.com, 818-610-8088. 
It's time to make the Tri-City Center in Redlands a regular part of your weekly shopping experience. Tri-City is home to a wide assortment of quality businesses, including the all-new Ocean Aquatics. Check out their variety of exotic tropical fish along with fish food, accessories, and tanks of all shapes and sizes. The Tri-City Center is located just off of Alabama and the Tennessee exits in Redlands. Visit the Tri-City Center today and find out why it's called the Mall with a Heart. K-C-A-A. Welcome to Smart Health Talk with your host, Elaine McFadden. Welcome, everyone. It's Smart Health Talk time. And for those of you that are looking for food freedom, you're at the right place because food freedom, baby, is what we're all about. And you may not realize it, but your freedom is being taken away big time, your freedom of choice. And that is something that's incredibly disturbing because most of the food out there is nutrient uh, de devoid <laughs> is what I should, it, there's like no nutrition there. It's mainly a lot of calories, uh, fat that's contaminated with pesticides. And all we have to do is look at the stats. We're at 60% obesity, everyone. So there's a problem with the food that we're eating. And that's because most of it is processed. Most of it is factory farmed. Uh, we have, we don't have that real nutrient dense farm fresh food available to us unless you are smart enough to go and find these farms that you can buy from. As a, as a matter of fact, I, I should start um, posting a group of them because they're uh, in California, we are going to do a segment on what's happening to the chicken population, especially for home gardeners, uh, because the county is going around testing all these different um, birds in people's backyards even for the avian flu. And the thing is that really is upsetting is this problem was created because of factory farms. We should not have to go around and test every single person's chicken in their backyard for this flu because it is such a threat. And I just uh, had one um, story that I was looking at here that I had saved that I thought was really good. And it says that uh, a vet won't sign off a prescription for 100 tubes for 100 cows anymore. What does that mean? That means that for a long time now, the common practice has been one tube of antibiotics for each cow, whether they're sick or not, just give them the antibiotics. And we have people uh, dying uh, all over the world right now of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So what is, what is our solutions, everyone? Well, we actually have solutions. We need to be supporting our small farmers and buying direct whenever we can. 
because that is the best way to make sure that the farmer, number one, is making the money because they're making like 9% because everyone else is sucking off of them when they should be making the 100%. And when you go to the grocery store, all you're doing is getting sucked into buying all this factory farmed and processed foods that's making you fat. So let's just not even, let's just avoid going to the grocery store as much as we can. Who says that we got to support Kroger or Stater Brothers or Vons or whoever's bottom line? We don't have to support any of them. We need to support our farmers. And we hear all this talk about, oh, we need GMOs to feed the world, uh, sustainable farming. That's like a pie in the sky fantasy way of thinking. It's not realistic. Uh <laughs> Guess what? Sustainable farming is what's going to feed the world. Sustainable farming is what's going to save the human species and help to reverse climate change. That's why we need to pull our, put our full attention in that. And we have an expert on our show today, an expert that's, we're talking dollars here. People want to talk, talk money. We should be talking money. We should be talking numbers. We should be talking science. What, what is the science and the math telling us about the best way to farm? To dump billions and billions of dollars into these GMOs, and it's not even food. They're not even feeding us food, the nutritionist, the nutritionist dense food that we need to stay healthy. And not only are we obese, but we're a very sick country. We're, we're, we're sicker than all the other top countries out there, and our health care costs like way more than any of the other. We're doing so many things wrong. So we have to start supporting our farmers and we have to start protecting our farmers and starting to make sure that they have access to what they need to even run a business because that's what a farm is. So John, okay, I'm not, it's, um, uh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have him say his last name because I'm not sure that I'm going to get it right, but he's from the University of it's I I I I say it again. I I curd. I curd. I curd. Okay, there we go. I got it. Woo! All right, and he he teaches because he knows so much over at the University of Missouri on this subject. And besides that, he's an author with like some really good books to help farmers and to help the rest of us understand. Where are taxpayer dollars going and what are we really getting for it? We're spending all this money and are we getting healthy food for our families? No, we're getting poisoned food that's making us fat. That's what I think. Am I wrong, John, or am I? No, no you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, I think it's ironic that when I was growing up, I'm getting to be an old man. When I was, was growing up in the 1940s and, and early 1950s, uh, you know, we talk about really good food, nutrient-dense food, uh, food produced without uh, pesticides or, or hormones or antibiotics, food without GMOs as being sort of a, a luxury nowadays that you have to pay a higher price in order to get it from the grocery stores in particular. Or, or in, in most cases, it, there's some higher cost of production doing it. Back when I was growing up, that's what everybody ate. That's the only food there was. Uh, we were growing food without uh, chemical fertilizers in many cases and without pesticides, commercial pesticides. We were growing without hormones, antibiotics, um, you know, any of those sort of things, certainly without GMOs. And, and that was the food that people ate. And food, you know, as you've indicated here, people were much healthier then. We didn't have the epidemic of obesity and, 
it's it's not just the obesity it's the illnesses that are associated with it it's diabetes an academic of diabetes and heart disease and which, high blood which pressure is preventable that's what's sad cancer and a whole range of things that have evolved out of you know trying to make cheap food we've we've really succeeded in making cheap food that isn't worth anything there you go. And not only um, are we are we eating differently, John, but we're cooking our food differently, too. Right. You know, all of this canola oil, which is rapeseed oil, is what they used to call it back then. Uh, and, uh, you know, these GMO oils that were designed for the fast food industry so that they could fry food over and over again and the oil wouldn't break down. Right. But they tried to tell us, oh, it's good for you. Don't worry, it's it's good for you, right? <laughs> they tried tried to tell us all these things were good for us, but we're finding out differently. We're finding out that uh, you know the quest for cheap food—I call it quick, convenient, and cheap—has led us to food that's uh, that's not worth the time or effort. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Effort or money that we put into it. I, I call it a negative food. It's, <laughs> it's, it's doing yeah. more damage than nourishing your body right. with the kind of nu- nutrition because... I don't know if I had mentioned it to you, John, but I started, um, I joined a food buying club here, and Amos Miller Organic Farm, which is an Amish farm in Pennsylvania, we have a shipment that comes on a refrigerator truck once a month, mm-hmm. and that we get super discount shipping as well, uh, but it's a group buy, so we're using the power of the group, right. and um, this food is not it's unadulterated they haven't sucked some of the fat out of the milk so that they could make more money on the milk uh the bacon is actually smoked with real wood can you imagine that in a room with real wood and they they sell potato chips fried in lard and when i opened that bag of potato chips i was in heaven with that smell because i was like this is it. This is the right. way that I remember food used to smell because we used to cook everything in lard. And now right. and now they're taking the, I don't know if you know this, but I was really shocked when I learned that our animal fat, because I kept wondering, where is the animal fat going? They're actually making pesticide. The surfactant, the most toxic part of the pesticide, is made with tallow, beef wow. fat, and then they're also making ethanol with factory farmed uh, animal fat. That's yeah, what we're doing with surprised. our animal fat. <laughs> when we, when that's the highest source of vitamin D out there, is right. beef fat. So how did how did we get here, John? How did we get to this point where we well, our you, supermarkets are filled with all this crap food? <laughs> Well, you, you talked about uh, economics, and I am an agricultural economist. I taught, um, I was on the faculty of four different major agricultural colleges over a period of 30 years before, before I retired. And, the, the and what, what half, is economics for people that are kind of well, not really clear on just what that is? Well, 
when I talk about economics or the agricultural economics, we're dealing with the with the economic transactions. When we talk about economic value today, that's the the economic transactions. That's the buying and selling and talking about things, you know, that people acquire by buying and selling rather than relating to each other and doing for themselves. And you know, that's a big part of what's been what's been driving uh, our whole society is this quest for ever greater economic affluence, economic growth, uh, economic prosperity. The basic idea is, is if you have more money, then you can buy almost anything with it. You can exchange it for a whole range of things. And so we, we've kind of began to focus on money if, if that was the purpose for doing something rather than the money being a means to an end. So when when we first got involved in what I call kind of the industrialization of the food system, and I really participated in that process the first half of my 30-year academic career, the, the idea was is that we were going to bring down the economic cost of food. We were going to make good food affordable to everyone by increasing the economic efficiency of agricultural production. And in the process of that, we would create opportunities for innovative farmers uh, to make profits from that. Because if we and the universities could find ways and develop technologies or help industry develop technologies that would reduce the cost of production, then there'd be profit opportunities for those that wanted to adopt those technologies. And so we anticipated the farmers would be profitable, then the farms would be profitable. We'd have healthy, prosperous, rural communities. Well, you know, I came to the conclusion about halfway through in the middle of the 1980s in what I still call the farm financial crisis, that none of those things had worked. It, it first became apparent when the farmers that we had talked about pushing for economic efficiency, primarily by adopting industrial technologies, industrial strategies of specialization, uh, standardization, routinization, mechanization, and then you simplify the production process so you can manage more acres, produce more livestock, because you've simplified that whole process. Well, that, I, I began to see then that that meant that farmers were going to get, you heard the get bigger, get out strategy of the 1970s and 1980s. That was because they were telling farmers you have to get big to achieve these economies of scale to be economically competitive. But I began to see then as some farmers got bigger, that meant that some farmers had to get out because there wasn't room for all of them. They were increasing production overall, increasing production per farm, and we were forcing farmers out of business during the 1980s and the, during the farm financial crisis by just simply farmers not being able to pay off the debts that they'd build up trying to get bigger during the 1970s when the export markets declined. And so we had farmers being forced out of business, uh, bankruptcies and foreclosures on farms were routine fare on the evening news programs. Uh, many farmers committed suicide when they were losing their farms. I said, there's something fundamentally wrong with this. And then I looked around and I could see what was happening to the rural communities. They were dependent upon those families, not just agricultural production. And when the families left, there was nobody to shop on Main Street to keep the schools open, keep the churches open, to do anything that keeps the community alive. And, and it was only then I became aware of the negative impact on the on the environment, the pollution of air and water with agricultural chemicals and biological waste, and you know the the general degradation of the environment in rural areas. And I said, 
to myself, I said, we can't continue doing this. It's, this didn't turn out the way we intended it to. And I didn't discover until later, we didn't even feed the hungry. We have a higher percentage of people that are classified as as food insecure or hungry today than we had back in the 1960s before we started all of this. So it, it didn't do any of the things that we anticipated it would do. And as you mentioned here, uh, in the process of making food cheap, we made food basically worthless or worse than worthless, and we've created this epidemic of diet-related diseases. And it is about that time that I become aware of uh, a movement called sustainable agriculture, and I've been involved in that ever since. And, and what that's about is, is balancing the need to make a living on a farm, which is important, the economic dimension is important, but that has to be balanced with farmers you know, being a good place to raise a family and farmers being responsible members of their community. And it has to be balanced with being able to take care of the land and keep healthy, productive soil. And so when we talk about the lack of nutrient density, I think there's increasing scientific evidence that says that starts when we deplete the natural productivity of the soil. In fact, the, the leading soil scientist and agronomist back in the 1940s or 30s, 40s, and 50s this is what they were saying before industrial agriculture came on the scene. I'm a, a, a follower and admirer of Professor Albrecht at the University of Missouri. And, and he was uh, right at the he top. He was right. Of the he was right, profession. wasn't he, John? Yeah. He, he's he was been right. so right. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was saying that when we go to focusing just on productivity and using commercial fertilizers and pesticides and maximizing economic yield, he talked about economics. He says we're going to end up with foods that are going to be high in calories because carbon, hydrogen, oxygen are things that you can take from the air. They don't need to be in the soil. You get some nitrogen from the air, too, but he says to make proteins. But, but he was saying that nitrogen has to be combined with essential micronutrients from the soil in order to produce complete proteins, which is essential to human health. So he said we will, we will end up with foods that will be high in calories, but they'll be lacking in essential nutrition. And, and that's precisely uh, what has happened. So that's in a nutshell, <laughs> that's kind of my lesson of a, of a period of 30, 40, 50 years now. Well, uh, John, I just want to read you this one co uh, quote from Sonny Perdue, our current Secretary of Agriculture, <laughs> uh, that he said at the World Dairy Expo in Madison, Wisconsin, last, uh, well, at the beginning of the month, uh, he says, in America, the big get bigger and the small go out. I don't right. think in America we, for any small business, we have a guaranteed income or guaranteed profitability. So, I mean, the small farmers are struggling. Where I have interviews with farmers telling me we have one generation of small farmers left and then they're gone. And I hear this quote, and it's obvious that our government is not supporting small farmers at all. Right. Now, I, again, I saw the transition uh, in government farm policy. I was a policy specialist at the University of Georgia before I returned to the University of Missouri. But I, I saw that transition, and it came in the 1970s. And up till the, the 1970s, when, the, when farm programs you know, farm food programs basically come into being in the, during the depression of the 1930s. But, but up until the late, the late 60s, early 70s, the focus of farm programs was to keep enough family farmers on the land to provide food security for the country. The whole idea 
in, in agricultural and farm policies up to that time was was to support family farmers. Now, we still talk about that, but that whole mission was basically abandoned in the 1970s, and that's when the Nixon-Butts administration come in, and Earl Butts was the one that family famously said, you got to plant fence row to fence row, get bigger, get out. And, and that's when we shifted agricultural policies to supporting this industrial model of agriculture that I've talked about. And are we Standard, safer? Yeah. Did, did that increase national security, yeah. John? Because I don't Good. see where monocropping is increasing our national security. No. Those small farms were what increased right. our national security. <laughs> I tell people, you know, I was a part of it. It was well intended based on the, the kind of assumptions that I talked about while ago, but I think it's been readily apparent since the, since the 1980s for anybody that was watching it, that it was a, a grand experiment, but it didn't work. Uh, it didn't increase national security. It, it actually made us worse off in all of the categories that are really dependent upon for national security. What we've done now is even gone beyond producing for domestic consumption or agriculture programs that produce for domestic consumption. And, and we're supporting the production for exports and, and for production of ethanol. And we're exploiting the yes. natural resources. We're polluting the water and air with agricultural chemicals and biological waste so that we can export meats and feed grains to other so countries. So mega farms, yeah. uh, big yeah. giant farmers can export right. and make money. So we're we're polluting our country so that we can grow all this food that we can sell to other countries. And we're taking the brunt of all the pollution here. And I I was really glad to see that you were speaking up about antitrust issues because when you're probably very much aware of the purchase of Smithfield, uh, the biggest pork producer in our country by a Chinese-owned company. So they're pretty much using us, at, you know, to produce food yeah. that they're shipping over to China. And we're, take, we're the ones with all the pollution and all the byproduct for producing this. And what are we really getting out of it, John? Right. Right, and, and we're getting nothing. But we basically turned our rural areas, our agricultural areas, have been turned into economic colonies. You know, we talk about uh, colonies like we, you know, the major countries of the the world during the early 1900s, 1800s, 1900s were colonizing places. You go in and take out all of the natural resources and all of the wealth. And then you would promise to develop the country, but you wouldn't. And then when the wealth was gone, extracted, then you would leave them behind. But That's what's going example. on now, it's it's not colonization by other governments. It's colonization by these large agribusiness corporations. And, and I was talking about, ones even. you know, <laughs> I was talking about a specialized, standardized, consolidate. Now it's gone beyond consolidating into larger and larger farms. It's consolidation into this large corporate control. And that's control of our taxpayer dollars as well. Tell people about where their taxpayer dollars are going and who's getting them, you know, especially over the past six months with this tariff <coughs> debacle and, uh, you know, all these farmers <coughs> just sitting there and all these crops just rotting. I mean, is this the most ridiculous situation that you can ever imagine with our right. agriculture system right now? I just, I, I'm beyond... Right. Uh, and, and the money that we're being appropriated in farm programs today are going 
predominantly like something like 75, 80% goes to the, the largest 10% of the farmers. And many of those, in, in most cases, even the, the government payments just pass through the farmer and go directly to the corporations that increasingly control agriculture through contractual arrangements on the large scale confinement animal feeding operations and through genetic modification of crops and ricensing of crops and pesticides and so on in the cropping area. But most of that is kind of a pass-through money. But I, it, the, the thing that you mentioned recently about the, um, you know, the tariffs on imports and exports and things of that nature, the trade wars and the compensation for that, the, the, the compensation that's been promised, like $16 billion last year and, and $18 billion this year, and that's going primarily to people that are... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Affected by the export market. They were projecting the total outlay of USDA or federal money for commodity-associated agricultural programs, not including conservation food stamps and that sort of thing, was to be about $17 billion. And, and so we're already put about twice as much money just into compensating the big farmers for things that have been done uh, in the in the trade wars as as the total compensation for agriculture would have been, you know, without... Uh, How many without organic farmers are getting... Uh, getting any of those billions very very few of them would would qualify for them because they're basically commodity oriented programs and that's the way they support this large-scale specialization you know i said the first characteristic of industrialization is specialized specialized in producing either crops and livestock initially rather than diversified family farms and then specialized in particular crop or two crops or specifically species of, of livestock and, and so that's where the farm programs have been focused. And so you can get crop insurance, but it's on specific crops. Or at least there's a, a minor I, I found that insurance really yeah. confusing, John. Yeah. Can you, because this yeah. is a big burden for farmers, this crop insurance. Right. And it's really dictating... <laughs> Uh, yeah. What kind of foods are being grown in our country? Right, it, it does. And and the, the reason, it's a burden for farmers, but most people don't realize that we taxpayers are picking up about 60% of the total cost of that farm insurance, uh, crop insurance. Plus, uh, we're also picking up a good share of the administration of that program by private insurance companies. And, really? and the reason it's so costly is this industrialization <sighs> agriculture where you focus on one particular crop or one particular species of livestock is tremendously risky because agriculture by its very nature is a risky business. You're having to deal with, with, with weather conditions that are unpredictable and now increasingly unpredictable with the, you know droughts and floods and a range of things. And if you're in the livestock business and you've got one of these large confinement operations of one species, one phase of production, you come through with a disease, as you were talking about earlier, you have a disease that can wipe out the whole flock. And like in Iowa on the laying hens, uh, you know, millions of birds can be wiped out. 
They and, have and killed so, millions of birds. Yeah. Just a couple of years ago, we had yeah. uh, millions and millions, not just birds, but pigs right. as well. Yeah. I right. talked to someone. They were, they were talking like a million pigs right. killed at one facility. Right. And you wonder and so, how many of those were borderline and went through that right. were just getting sick, right? Yeah, and, and the thing is, is when, when that happens then, uh, the government steps in. You know, in, in the case of crop, you have the crop insurance, so you have a crop failure. We had late planting this year in many areas, and you didn't get the crop in. Well, if that was insured, they got paid even if they didn't get the crop in. Or, or if they got it in late, if they don't make a full crop, then that's going to be insured. In the case of livestock, it's somewhat different, but you have a catastrophe like we're talking about here. And when I was talking about the laying hens in Iowa, I looked it up online to see how much we taxpayers had paid. And, and we paid like $14 a bird in terms of federal payments for each bird that was, was killed. And, and then, you know, to control the really? disease. And then we paid for the cleanup of the buildings and reestablishing the buildings and getting those old operations started. And, and that's because of the tremendous risk that's associated uh, with this industrial system of agriculture. In sustainable agriculture, you have diversified, integrated crop and livestock system. If you lose one crop, there's another crop. Or if you have a reduced yield on one, you've got an increased yield or a bumper crop on something else. And that's diversity was, was what made family farming, give family farming, diversified family farming an advantage uh, at the time when that prevailed over any sort of specialized agriculture. So when we went to move toward industrial agriculture, then the government came in through government programs and basically uh, shared the risk and picked up a big part of the risk in this industrial model of agriculture. And if we change government programs now so that the government didn't absorb that risk, then we'd find out that agriculture would change dramatically because these farms couldn't afford to pay the full cost of the insurance or to bear the full risk of the loss in their operations. I tell you, John, for $14, I got the most incredible chicken from a local farmer that was eight months old. That chicken had lived outside and eaten insects its life, which is what chickens are supposed to eat. But 98% 90, of the people out there are eating chickens and eggs that were raised by GMO corn or soy. And, um, I mean, it was worth every penny because not only right. the most beautiful breasts and then the bones – uh, I made this fantastic bone broth, and then I made chicken and right. dumplings. <laughs> so, right. But that's and the way the, we used to eat. We used to, like, yeah. use all our food like that. Yeah. And we can we can eat that way again. And people think that, oh, it would cost us so much more if we did that. that the higher costs that we're paying now are not necessarily higher cost of production. There are some higher cost of production in producing food that way because – you're not imposing cost on the environment. You're not imposing cost on your neighbors by the way you're producing it. But but the big part of the higher cost is is not at the production level. It's in the distribution level because we have a distribution system that's built for this large-scale specialized system that runs products. Right, like I was talking about the getting it to the yeah. grocery stores. Yeah. That's, and, that's part and, of that system. And so when you move outside that system – then there's high cost of, of uh, distribution, retailing, getting the product to you is much higher than it is, you know, within the conventional food system. 
In fact, if you looked at, at the farm level cost, you talk about what the farmer actually gets, but the cost at the farm level of food is, is less than 15% of what we pay in the grocery store. Of course, the farmer doesn't get all that because they have to pay for inputs and fertilizer, pesticides, whatever they're putting into their operation. But anyway, it's only like less than 15%. So if, if we paid 15% more to the farmer, let's just make it easy and say that we'd pay twice as much at the farm level, then that only amounts to 15% more at the retail level if everything else was equally efficient to what it is now in terms of the distribution and retailing and so on of getting the food from the farmer to the customer. So that's, that's a big part of where the increased costs are. The studies that have been done in this area of, of a transformation to sustainable agricultural system, this would take some period of time, as, as we change the systems of processing and distribution to accommodate the smaller organic, um, you know, grass-based, hormone, antibiotic-free, uh, nutrient-dense foods that we'd be producing in a sustainable system. Uh, once we had made the transition to where we reorganize and restructure the food processing and distribution system to fit that kind of agriculture production system, the estimates are that cost of production on food might be anywhere between 8 to 12 percent higher than they would be with the industrial food system. Well, what a lot of people don't recognize is when we decided that we were going to use corn for biofuels, for ethanol, uh, rather than even just feeding it to livestock, our, our cost of food went up more than that, went up 10 to 12 percent as a result of that decision to, to start making gasoline, start making, um, you know, gasohol out of corn. And you didn't hear any outcries of, of, of people in the streets and people starving or whatever when we did that. And so if we, if we stop that, that would pay yeah. for the extra cost yeah. for the sustainable farming yeah. even. If we, we put that land, you know, back into producing food and helping young farmers and sustainable farmers get started into agriculture. And if we and if we look over time, you know, when we talk about the sustainability of agriculture and the reason that I changed from supporting industrial agriculture to sustainable agriculture is the important thing about sustainable agriculture. It says it's about meeting the needs of the present without diminishing opportunities for the future. And that says that that kind of agriculture has to last. You have to be able to do it indefinitely. It has to be regenerative, self-renewing, based on solar energy that's coming in. And when you look at industrial agriculture, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable ecologically. It's destroying the natural productivity of the soil. It's inherently dependent upon fossil energy, which eventually will be depleted. It's destroying the natural environment in which it functions. It's destroying the the social and economic systems that supports it. It's it's it totally degrading and destroying the rural communities in which it functions. And, and it, as we've talked about here, it's not even economically viable because whatever we've saved, the average consumer has saved in terms of the reduced cost of food, we've more than paid for in the increased cost of health care and much of that's associated with the American diet. So this sustainable system simply is not sustainable. We can't continue doing what we're doing. And, and the farther we get pushing this in the direction of it, this unsustainable system in the direction that we're going, both the environmental cost and the economic cost will rise. So over a reasonably short period of time, 
the the economic cost of producing food sustainably and organic and biodynamic and hormone antibiotic free and pasture based this whole range of agroecology a whole range of alternatives will be economically more efficient at some point in the future you know the transition from convention the agriculture i grew up with the family farm agriculture uh, to the industrial agriculture really happened in a period of about 50 years and between the 1950s, uh, basically, or the 1960s and the 1990s, most of it happened during that period of time. It hasn't changed a whole lot since then. And and I think within that time period of, of that short, we will see that sustainable agriculture is actually more economically efficient. But in order to bring that about, we are going to have to be willing to to make some economic sacrifices, short-run economic sacrifices in the short run, though I argue that they're affordable for everybody that really appreciates good food like we're talking about. We're going to have to be willing individually as consumers to seek out farmers and to support farmers even when we don't have an economically efficient system of processing and distribution because we've got to encourage that farmer so that we can build up to the point where we have enough farmers that are farming that. <laughs> that way that we can have uh, some efficiency of moving larger and larger volumes of sustainably produced food through our food system overall. What I foresee for the future, if we looked out 30 or 40 years into the future, what I foresee is, is bioregional and national and even global networks of sustainable community-based food systems where we're getting a, a large share of our food from local farmers within our community, and we know how they farm. They're, and they they're actually they building them. A, a yeah. new facility was yeah. built around a farm. Housing right. was built around a farm um, yeah. up in, like, Illinois or someplace like that. Yeah. Now, in the meantime, you know, we, we've got to move food across the country, and we've got to do things other ways to help these farmers get started. But I think that's the way we support uh, farmers with our with our purchasing with our dollars uh, so that they can have an opportunity to grow the system and as the system grows then it becomes more economically efficient uh, again as an economist uh, people say well if it's more economically efficient you talk about it at 30 40 years once you go ahead and do it well the problem is is this economic value this transactions value that I talked about a while ago it's inherently short term because economic value transactions value is always a means to something else you know if you have a dollar or ten dollars it's worth nothing except what you're going to buy with it so there has to be an expectation that you're going to get something back out of that money that's going to be worth more than whatever you gave up to get that ten dollars let's say so in economic terms, then, the longer you have to wait to get a return back on whatever investment you make, the, the less that investment is worth because you're not sure that you're going to be able to realize the value at some time in the future uh, that you could realize by spending that money today. And that's the reason you have to pay interest when you borrow money and you expect to earn interest when you loan money because you're deferring the transaction, you're deferring, converting that money into something that's useful to you to some time later. And if you take that just a little bit further, and when you get old, this makes more sense to you, it makes absolutely no economic sense to invest in anything if the return on that investment is likely to come after you're dead. There's no way to get anything back on it. So if you're 
then these big corporations are pure economic entities. They're not going to make investments uh, if over the long term unless uh, oh, those returns are so we far can't count on them. The yeah, <laughs> they're not. So, they're not going to help. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've got to, as individual consumers, as individual citizens, then we have to make decisions that reflect our social and ethical values, not just the economic value. And so what we do is we realize that making some sort of, of affordable economic sacrifice to eat good food, uh, you know, it has some payoff to us in terms of health, in terms of satisfaction and flavor. But we have to be willing to say, I'm willing to, to pay something over and above what it might be worth to me individually, economically, but because I want to spend what money I've got doing something I feel good about. I, well, I want yeah, to, it's just know, like a donation to a good yeah. cause. And, and yeah. plus, it's, yeah. from my understanding, John, we are paying the lowest percentage of our income towards food right. than any other time in history. People right. used to pay 49% of their income right. on food. Right. And, and it's not necessary to have a sustainable system, as I've talked about before, to, to pay 40%. We, if we make the transition to the system, we might pay uh, 12 or 13% rather than 10% or something of that nature. But, but I mean, that's, that's affordable. And we've got to find some other way to provide good food for low-income Well, I have my ideas on how we – see, I – I personally, I want to keep people out of the supermarket. You, right. I, I know that you're kind of retail motivated from um, your past experience, but for me, um, I would rather for people not to shop. And I've actually challenged myself now that I've been getting the shipments from Amos Miller's farm uh, from ordering. I ordered like $600 worth of food and then for three people, but I still, I still have stuff left and it's towards the end of the month. But right. trying to challenge myself to just live off of what I got from the right. farm and not have to go to the grocery store and get more no. things. I love that exercise because it's teaching people not to go, you know, not to have all these like little snack items everywhere. Like right. you go to the, the refrigerator and it's just like, you know, okay, I got to make a meal here. It's like not just like right. nibbling on worthless snacks. And um, just, you no, know, to I, get people I, cooking again, even. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100% on what you're saying. And, and I think, you know, the transition is I'm just telling people that you have to do what you can, what you can like. Yes, that's the number one thing, yourself. the mindset, but, the ideology. I think, I think the transition will be we're in the middle of a, of a transition in retailing in general, including uh food retailing. Um, more and more is being ordered online. More and more is being delivered to the home. In fact, it's much more energy efficient if, if you have something, you know, that you can deliver a significant quantity of food to your home rather than making two or three trips to the grocery store. And, and I think we have That's the way I looked at it. Yeah. And, and the one thing is, is that when you go to the, uh, you know, kind of an internet-based system where you my idea is that you could you could go online in your own community and you could see well, every farmer that has know. anything to offer there and you could order your whole groceries there and then you know they could come through the FedEx truck comes through my neighborhood every day anyway they could drop off my food when they drop all, all the other stuff people are ordering online well, well the whole co-op buying like um I yeah. I'm a mar I'm a member of a food buying club and it right. all comes on the same truck for a whole bunch of us right. and um 
but not just the not just the co-op for that, but I, I want to start working with farmers. And, and I've been giving suggestions to them like, listen, why don't you guys get your own groups together right. and start negotiating with your suppliers? Like who, yeah. what kind of stuff do you need to run your farm? What right. things do you have to buy? Because I know that a lot of things, sustainable farmers don't need to be bringing in loads of, you know, fertilizer and all that because a self-sustaining right. farm can help eliminate that need. But what things do can you not live without? And what can we do to go to the suppliers of that and negotiate something for yourself and maybe a, another group of farmers where you can start co-op buying and negotiating your deals that way? Um, so I want to start getting farmers working together to share expenses to share um, ideas and I is another thing that I from what I understand uh, you talked about the evolution of how we we geared up to these huge factory farms and part of that was the machinery involved in those farms and it's become I've read a, a lot of articles on farmers that are complaining that the small farms it's very hard for them because these new tractors that they get they're um, they're not really designed for the small farmer and then they say oh well if you want to fix this you got to have our guy come and do it right. and they can wait for like a couple of days before the guy even shows up and they're in the middle of harvest and they're losing money every single day and they would rather fix their own tractor right. they don't want somebody else to come and charge them an arm and a leg when they know how to fix their own tractor yeah. we need to like as this evolution we need to look at all these different things yeah. within the production of a sustainable system and go, okay, what are all the things within this system that we can do more efficiently, but still maintain the integrity of a sustainable operation? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I tell people everywhere I go, farmers and other people, I really believe we're in the we're in the process of, of reinventing the, the whole food system, all the way from agriculture, all the way through and the system. And guess who's We're threatened by that, John? Yeah. Who is threatened yeah. by that? Big These big sure. corporations are threatened by it, these big grocery store chains, because right. they we needed them back then. We needed right. those people because the, the distribution chain. But now farmers can, can become independent instead of dependent. And right. Amos is running his farm, you know, just fine with the way he's doing it. People either come into the farm or sending these shipments out. And I'm like, let's duplicate this model. If it, if it means the government is not going to support our small farmers, then we as people, just like you were saying, John, we need to start taking action as right. consumers and so pay that little bit more if we have to. Right. Yeah, and the way the way ultimately we change uh, the farm policy and the food policy of the country is that that we prove that these alternatives that we're talking about here exist. I I, th I don't think I certainly know I'm not smart enough to to know what the food system of the future will look like, but but I think if the people we're talking about here and you and uh, Amos that you're talking about and the people 
I'm speaking at a conference in uh, November 4th through 14th through the 17th. I thought you might be interested in. It's, it's sponsored yes. by the Bionutrient Food Association in South Southwoods, Massachusetts. Uh, but I'm I'm speaking at that conference up there, and whenever I speak at a conference like that, I tell people, you know. We need to try all of the things out here because nobody knows what will work. I'm not smart enough to, you know, know what will and won't work. I, I, you don't have to be very smart. Well, to the, know the what farmer has to know their customer work. for one yeah, thing. Yeah, the farmers and the customers have to link up and have to try different ways of, 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 of getting together. It's that connection between the farmer that wants to produce nutrient-dense, sustainable food and wants to produce healthy food in a way of getting connected with a caring customer and however they do that then they can work out and they'll recreate the food system when i first got involved in sustainable agriculture and i understood industrial agriculture i really thought this transformation would be over by now that we would have yeah me too i was selling organic in the 80s i was selling organic produce back then because i believed it and i listened to the farmers and they were extremely unhappy because as you explained it to us we were full on into that transition at that point in the 80s and they were miserable and they were saying about how these companies were threatening them and threatening to raise prices on them if they complained about anything. And I mean, I was just like, oh, my God, these farmers are like owned by these companies. Yeah, and and that's what stopped that transition. Otherwise, I think we would have already been through it. The reason that it didn't move forward is because of the economic and political power of the large agribusiness corporations and the various commodity associations that focus on specific commodities and some of the big farm organizations like the the uh, American Farm Bureau Federation has supported this oh, industrial yeah. model for oh, whatever reason. So that's what that's what stopped the transition. I've I've said what it's going to take to create fundamental change in agricultural policies at the federal level is a consumer taxpayer revolt. And, and that's the reason we have to, you know, continue to educate people and help people understand what's going on. But if we get to that point, then we have to have something to change, too. And, and my sense is, and my, I'm, I'm convinced of this, that, that the sustainable agriculture technologies and understanding and knowledge on farmers is further along today than the industrial technologies were when we changed farm policies in the 70s. Oh, so we have have, the tools. We have the knowledge to do this. Yeah, and if we have this, if we can generate enough success stories of people that are creating the new system to create this consumer taxpayer revolt, and then we get a change in farm policies, this whole thing could change dramatically in a short period of time, and we could replace this food system with something that's fundamentally different and fundamentally better. Well, I tell you, if people out there listening to this, if you want to change your health, if you want to change your life, your body, I mean, do it. join our food buying club with Amos Miller. Go to the go to the um, website and check it out. But when you start eating these foods, John, it's just amazing to me, like how my appetite changed. Um, at, from getting like real food, like the other day. I mean, I was raised um, on mashed potatoes and gravy and fried chicken, you know, that kind of stuff. And my grandma, she always made bacon and eggs and we made gravy and biscuits and all that. And 
And then, you know, as a dietitian, you know, they train, oh, you know, that's like, you know, evil, evil gravy, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of things, right? And I just right. said, you know, I don't care. I'm eating this stuff. And I made, I made gravy and biscuits. And like, the thing was, when I ate that food, the full feeling that I right. had in my stomach felt so good. It just, I had not, like, right. I forgot what it felt like to feel full <laughs> yeah. because this yeah. other food is not getting it. It is right. not making me feel full and satisfied. And I, all these people I talk to, they're like, oh yeah, when we start eating from the farm, our appetite goes down. We're not hungry anymore. They lose all kinds of weight. Their body changes, their health changes. And he is feeding the sickest of the sick. And he's having to fight the USDA just to have uh, slaughter his animals the way he wants to slaughter right. them. And so we are going to start testing the meat. We're going to be um, doing a, a project where we're going to test different meat. Because the USDA is like, oh, that's dangerous, like what Amos <laughs> is doing over there. Oh, but he's feeding the sickest people, and they're getting healthier, not sick, okay? <laughs> so yeah. why are we not looking at this? Are, does anyone care that people, you know, eat this food and they get healthy? No, because the people in power don't want us to be going that way. They're in bed with those 10% that are getting all right. the subsidies. Right. So um, what, what should we be doing? First of all, John, where where do people find you and your books? Because we only got a couple minutes left. Right. And then uh, any just, last words you want to say? Yeah, just go to, uh, to johneikerd.com, J-O-H-N-I-K-E-R-D.com. And that's my personal website. And there's a link to my University of Missouri website, there and I've got a, a number of papers on my personal website. There's actually hundreds of presentation papers on my University of Missouri. Well, website, I like so I just, like that paper about yeah. farmers need health care and they yeah. need free college. Yeah. I like that. Just the just as a closing comment, uh, you know, you ask what we can do. I I've come to the conclusion in my old age that we each have a purpose. There, it's not something that we're meant to achieve, but it's kind of a way that we're meant to live, a path that we're meant to walk. And I think each of our purpose, each of our paths is different, but one's not any more important than the other. And if we find what we can do, and I think that's what you're doing, and that's what I'm trying to do, if we think, if we can find what we can do to help make the world better in a way that we feel is important to us, which I think is what we're doing, then we will have made the greatest contribution that we possibly have could have made to, to make whatever we're involved in better and to help create a better world. And, you know, I tell people, regardless of whether that's right or wrong, it's, it's a good way to live. And it's always hopeful because you always have have the ability to do the things that you really should do and were meant to do. It wouldn't make any sense to have a purpose you couldn't fulfill. So I think if we find what we're to do, our particular piece, little piece of the world, what we can do, no matter how big or how small somebody might think that is, if we find what we really should be doing and do it, then we will have lived the best life we possibly could have lived. Well, one good thing, John, about helping organic farmers, it actually, you're helping yourself as well right. because you're getting healthier and you got some good food to eat, boy, and it's right. tasty. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us here on Smart Health Talk. We love you. You're one of our heroes. You're doing such a great job and just keep it up. All right. <laughs> thank you. All right, everyone. 
Smart Health Cock. I'm Elaine McFadden. We'll be back next Tuesday, 4 o'clock. Thanks for joining us. Bye. KCAA Local.